You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, and thank you for joining this special edition of the American Revolution. I had the opportunity to sit down with author Selena Baker, who's authored a number of books related to the American Revolution. She has a whole Angels and Patriots series, as well as a number of other novels. She's currently working on a novel that focuses on the life of Nathaniel Green. So we took the opportunity to talk about the life of Nathaniel Green. Please enjoy our discussion. Selena Baker, welcome to the American Revolution podcast. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for having me. So we're here to talk about Nathaniel Green, one of the top major generals of the Continental Army. Why specifically did you decide to write a book around General Green? He was an important character in my four-book series, Angels and Patriots. As I wrote about him and discovered more about him, I just became more and more fascinated with the man that he was and the, the man that he became. I just thought that he deserved a new book on him, and it is a novel, but it's historically accurate. That's pretty much where I went with that, was just to get his name out there. Not that there isn't plenty of information on him, because there is, but just wanted to write something new. No, I think that's true. I've seen a lot of polls which call him the most underrated person from the American Revolution, because he obviously was critical to the ultimate victory, but he doesn't get a lot of credit for a lot of reasons that we'll probably get into later in the talk. Nathaniel Green came from a Quaker family from Rhode Island. Is that right? Yes, he did. He was the fourth son of a Quaker preacher and businessman. It will strike many of us as odd as a Quaker and coming from a Quaker family becoming a military general. So I guess he wasn't the ideal son that his father wanted, let's say. Yes, that's true. His father limited his son's education to math, reading, and writing because he believed education beyond that led to temptation and sin. And so Nathaniel, as a boy, couldn't really, he began to not be able to tolerate that kind of a thing, and he wanted to learn more things. And he was already kind of a rebellious young man. He would sneak out of his window at night to go to dances and then come back, and his father would punish him for doing it. But he kept doing it anyway. He and his cousin Griffin went to a place in Connecticut that the friends disapproved of, and they called them on the floor and said, what are you guys doing? And neither one of them would talk. So the Quakers said, well, you're banned from the meetings. They didn't ban him from the society, just from the meetings. So it kind of started out a rebellious guy. I think he never really fitted well with the Quaker lifestyle and was probably just as happy to be separated from them as they were from him. What did he do in his early life before the war for a career? 
the sons worked their their father's business. Uh, he had a, a ship, he had a wharf, he had a farm and an iron forge. When he was about 28, his father sent him to Coventry, Rhode Island from their hometown of Potawatomi to Coventry, which wasn't that far away. Nathaniel built a house there and, and an iron forge was already there. And so he was the owner operator of the iron forge. So he actually pounded these smelt into anchors. They also owned a ship called Fortune. He and his brothers owned it together after their father died in 1770. They kind of were rebellious at that point because at this point, the British uh, were taxing cargo and they would run the fortune out away from Newport to avoid paying the the taxes on the cargo and their ship got confiscated. So this kind of launched him into the rebellion, obviously, for obvious reasons. Was not a big fan of British officials after that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, not at all. In fact, he sued, the guy's name was William Duddingston, and he sued Duddingston. He did win his case, but th- th- I couldn't find anything that said whether he ever actually got the money that he had won. And this actually led directly to the burning of the Gatsby in June of that same year, 1772. Nathana was accused of being part of it, but that was never proven. Right. The Gatsby was Duddington's ship. Yes. Uh, it was a Royal Naval ship that was burned to the ground by local patriots who were kind of sick of things Duddingston was doing. Uh, the story I'd heard actually was that the reason that they went out to the Gatsby that night that they ended up destroying it was for the sheriff to serve a warrant for Green's lawsuit. Exactly. And, and they were tired of the whole business. So, right. So Green got very active in the Patriot cause, and the Gatsby was in 1772, so this is a few years before the war really got going, but he began to become a lot more active. Things really heated up in 1774 after the British reaction to the Boston Tea Party, which happened in late 1773. The British locked down Boston, essentially closed the port, put a lot of restrictions on the state, and this is where a lot of people throughout the colonies decided it was time to step up their resistance. And my understanding is Green was a part of that, especially in Rhode Island. Yes. He joined a militia company called the Kentish Guards out of East Greenwich. Actually, his friend James Varnum, who went on to become an American Revolutionary War general, James was the captain of the Kentish Guards. And Nathaniel applied for a, a lieutenant position And they denied him and publicly humiliated him by telling him that his limp was embarrassing because he had a limp, that they couldn't have an officer limping about. He couldn't march well. Exactly. It wasn't, yeah, it wasn't soldierly like. He had other problems, physical challenges too. He had asthma and he had a smallpox scar on his right eye that caused eye infections. I'm sure them turning him down for that limp was the first public humiliation he probably suffered. Yeah, and he had actually played a key role in in establishing the Kentish Guards in the first place, so it was kind of doubly insulting to him because he had put a lot of his own time and money into establishing this this militia group Mm -hmm. in Rhode Island. But yeah, there were a number of reasons. I guess the limp was one. But in reality, he had no military experience. He hadn't fought in the French and Indian War, whereas Varnum had, and things like that. So we're looking at it 
<laughs> after seeing all of his greatness, <laughs> they're looking at it. Is this this is some guy with a limp and no military experience? Right. Officer. <laughs> and right, he had to go to Boston to buy a musket because he didn't even have a musket. So. <laughs> yeah, he bought an illegal musket from a, yeah. a French deserter. <laughs> <laughs> then he asked the guy to tr- help him train the, the guards i think he did too yeah british. he had a, a yeah. i don't know if it was the same british deserter but he did have a british deserter come and, and train the kentish guards and, and british military drill right <laughs> after he was denied his lieutenancy in the in the guard he actually ended up serving as a private right yes he stayed he was going to leave and he decided to, to go ahead and stay so then we have Lexington and Concord. Well, Nathaniel got married in July on July 20th, 1774 to his wife, Katie Littlefield Green, when the first shots were fired in Massachusetts that on April 19th, 1775, the Kennish guards were called out, but they got to the Massachusetts border and were called back by the governor of Rhode Island. So supposedly Nathaniel and a couple of other guys went ahead and rode in closer to Boston to see what was happening, and they came back. And right after that, the Rhode Island Assembly formed an army of observation. And for some reason, they chose Nathaniel to be their general after all of this business with the Kentish Guards. Yeah, he wasn't a good lieutenant, but hey, why not general? Yeah, right. And why he was chosen, I don't know. Maybe his family was well off. I mean, not they weren't rich, but they were well off. And they were influential in the community. And he did have managerial experience, if you want to put it that way, you know, with the the Iron Forge and whatnot. But why they actually plucked him out of the ranks. Well, everyone's found that strange. Everything I read on it, all the experts say, how on earth they came up with Green to lead the Army of Observation is a bizarre one. He was, by this time, he was in his early 30s, and he actually was a member of the Colonial Assembly, I believe. So the the men knew him, the, the people mm-hmm. who were deciding who were going to be this, the, the, the military leader knew him. And it may have been, you know, a bit like George Washington was with the Continental Congress in that they wanted one of their own, somebody that they knew and trusted at the head of this army that they were sending off. No, I think that, that that probably did have a lot to do with it. His distant relative, William Green, was involved with the assembly, as you said, and he eventually became governor of Rhode Island. So he had some connections. He came from a prominent family, but I mean there was a I mean there was a militia general in Rhode Island at the time and he got passed right over. <laughs> so yeah, so Green takes an army of observation up to Boston, which at this time the British army is under siege in Boston, being surrounded by this army of all sorts of uh, volunteers from various New England colonies that have joined this siege of the British army. How did Green uh, stand out at the siege of Boston? He was a real strict disciplinarian with his troops. They encamped on a hill in Roxbury, and he tried to keep them all clean and neat and behave. A lot of the patriots that were there at the time were, you know, they were kind of messy and undisciplined. And so and Nathaniel was a bit more controlling and he cared very much about his men, but they were raw recruits and a lot of the things that they did shocked him. So I think he stood out mostly because he tried so hard to make 
his little army, a, you know, a good disciplined unit. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I've heard the siege of Boston described as as a frat house meets Woodstock. <laughs> uh, it, Pretty was, much. it was thousands and thousands of untrained militiamen who, you know, militia at the time just meant you were some guy in a colony and you showed up four times a year for a little bit of drill. So you have all these young men just going out and camping around Boston, and there was really no strong officer corps or anything. And so the men pretty much did whatever they wanted. And, you know, how 20-year-old men are if they're left to their own devices. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But Green was particularly strict with his men, and he had all of his tents in very neat rows and was uh, very strict about them not going out into the field and just relieving themselves wherever they (laughs) Right, exactly. No card playing. No, yeah, he didn't like. Yeah, exactly. So um, I think that really caught the eye of General Washington when he arrived on the scene in in July of 1775. And I think that, as they say in the movies, was the beginning of a beautiful relationship uh, between Green and Washington. Uh, They they seemed to hit it off right away. Yes, they did. Nathaniel sent a letter of introduction to Washington. And they meant, but I can't find anything that said what exactly Washington and Nathaniel Green talked about. I've read a lot of his um, letters, and he doesn't really talk about that kind of the personal, that part of when he first met Washington. But something about the two hit off for sure. Washington was kind of getting to know all of the officers that Congress had appointed. and, And Congress had appointed Green to become a brigadier. Uh, the youngest yes. brigadier in the Continental Army at the time. So, yeah, they, they were getting to know each other. Uh, Washington famously was not a big fan of most New England men, but he did seem to get along well with Nathaniel Green. They had a few things in common. Neither one of them had a formal education. And Washington also was worked his mother's farm when he was a, a, a young man or a boy, just like Nathaniel had to do with his father. So, you know, maybe some building blocks right there. From a historical perspective, it doesn't seem like Green's role in this early year of the war was that impressive, at least as far as the battles go. He he was absent for Bunker Hill. He was back in Rhode Island recruiting at the time. He did not play a big role in the efforts of Henry Knox to bring the cannons. I, I believe he was sick at the time. He did. Um, and, and, yeah, he had jaundice. Mm-hmm. Right. So that, at the time, they were you know getting all the cannons up on... Uh, on the hill to to force the British to leave. Green really wasn't a part of any of that. But he did stay there for the whole, throughout the winter. A lot of men wanted to go home at the end of the year. Green, I know, was struggling. One of the reasons he was absent at Bunker Hill was that he was back in Rhode Island trying to recruit more recruits. They had, they had told yes. send an army of observation from Rhode Island of 1,500 men, and I don't think they ever got much above 1,000. Yes, that's where he was, when he, and they called him back right away that night. Well, on June 18th, he got the message about Bunker Hill. And the, really, the only role he played with the whole Dorchester Heights was, I believe, him and John Sullivan, maybe General John Sullivan, were supposed to be ready with, I'm going to say it wrong, bateau boats, in case the British decided to make some kind of amphibious-type you know, landing there around around there somewhere. I can't remember exactly where they were, but he was definitely not on on the height. 
this is Washington's crazy plan, which thankfully he matured over time. But his plan was that they were going to put all these cannons up on Dorchester Heights and the British would come out. Which, this is to the south of Boston and probably try to take those heights. And while they were doing that, there was another team, which I think Green was a part of, north of Boston, which was going to take ships and row across Boston Harbor in the face of British artillery, land, and then attack Boston proper while the British were supposedly involved in the South Boston thing. It would have been a bloodbath. If it had yes, it would have been a bloodbath for sure. <laughs> so, I mean, fortunately, the British never actually launched their attack on Dorchester. So Washington right. never launched this horrible counterattack, which probably would have been the end of Green. He probably would have been killed. <laughs> And what happened next? So, right, he's doing what he's told. <laughs> but the yeah, the British did retreat, and the army moved down to New York. And a lot of New England officers ended up staying in New England. The second in command of the army, Artemis Ward, never left New England, but Green did. Green had kind of tied himself to General Washington and really stuck with him for the next few years. When Washington's army moved to New York. Nathaniel was given uh, command of a string of forts on Brooklyn Heights on Long Island across the East River or the harbor from Manhattan. These originally, I think, were started by General Charles Lee, who was Nathaniel's direct commander during the Siege of Boston. So Nathaniel was given a string of these forts, and he worked really hard to make sure they were fortified and whatnot. And then the British start sailing into New York Harbor. They just keep coming and coming and coming. It, William Howe and his brother, Admiral Richard Howe, just shipped after ship. Nathaniel has spent a lot of time with his troops. He's disciplined them. He's told them not to plunder the citizens and whatnot. And also some of them were running around swimming naked, which he said was exo- not acceptable. <laughs> and Anyway, yeah, they're a bunch of frat boys, I'm telling you. They're exactly a bunch of frat boys. I imagine he probably chuckled over the complaint, but whatever. <laughs> so, uh, just when the British were dropping all these anchors, Nathaniel gets sick. I'm not sure whether he had typhoid or dysentery, but it was every his troops were sick, and a lot of the army was sick. It was prevalent all the way up to Kingsbridge. They had to take him off of Long Island and take him to Manhattan to a sick house. He was so ill. He was in and out of delirium. There's just no way he was going to be able to. So they sent General John Sullivan over there to take command. Washington did. Well, then, you know, Howe and, and his British troops and the Hessians and everybody launched an attack on Long Island. And Putnam takes over, General Putnam. Yeah. And, of course, we know what happened there. The whole thing was was a disaster, and, and Washington's army was beat badly. Yeah, it did not go well. But, uh, yeah, it, it, Green had actually been responsible for setting up the defenses on Long yes. Island before he got sick. So even though he wasn't there to take the fall when the British ended up succeeding, uh, it, again, did not look impressive for this this young general who's in his early 30s and, I guess, just before the battle had been promoted to major general. Yes, just before, exactly. So he is by far, I think, the youngest major general in the army at this point. He's in, I think he's about 32 years old at this time. Yes, yes. And he has no battlefield experience whatsoever at this point. 
So Washington still sees something in him, and he puts him in command of uh, Forts Washington and Lee, which uh, Fort Washington was in upper Manhattan, and Fort Lee was across the river in, in New Jersey. Just to back up a little bit, they did have a, a – there was a battle at Harlem Heights in September. It was actually more of a skirmish, I guess. And Nathaniel was actually there, and that was his first battle. Washington was dividing his army up and moving them here and there. And so he sent Nathaniel, and I don't know why he sent Nathaniel there, to command the two forts. Again, he's a new general. He's headquartered at Fort Lee. Fort Washington on the New York side of the Hudson is under the direct command of Colonel Robert McGaugh. They were supposed the two forts were supposed to be able to stop British ships from coming up the Hudson, and that didn't happen. They sailed by in November, and both forts opened fire, but the ship just kept going. And so Washington was saying they had lost the Battle of White Plains. Green was not at the Battle of White Plains, but uh, Washington had just lost Howe. And Washington was like, well, if, you know, these forts can't stop these ships, then they're not defensible. Green said, no, he believes they are defensible and assures Washington that they can get the men off if the forts are attacked. That's not what happened. Howe launches a three-pronged attack and Fort Washington falls. Right. And this is the largest American battle losses in the entire war up until Charleston in 1780. They lost what, two or three thousand men. Yes, two and, or three thousand. Yeah, um, all taken prisoner, most of whom died in British prison ships over the next couple of years. So it really was a devastating loss. One could have seen this as possibly being the end of Green's military career. Uh, Washington had actually ordered him to remove the soldiers from Fort Washington, but then said. But you have discretion because you're on the ground and can see what's going on. If you think yes. differently, that's fine. So he kind of gave him an out there. But Green used his discretion to maintain the fort, which led to the loss of all these men. Uh, you could argue Washington did much the same thing in Brooklyn, where he almost had his entire army trapped and managed to get them across the river in a, in a miracle retreat right. at night. And I think maybe Green thought he could do the same thing across the Hudson. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it, uh, he he didn't have Washington's luck, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He and Israel Putnam did go back right before Fort Washington was attacked. Him and General Putnam and General Mercer went across back to Fort Washington to see what was happening. And they didn't see the danger. Washington went on, came across the Hudson with troops, and they all went back to Fort Lee. And then that's when... How attacked Fort Washington. Washington and the other officers, I think it was Knox and Green and uh, Mercer, were actually on the New York shore when the British attacked, and they were very close danger of being captured themselves. Yes. And they all kept saying to General Washington that he needed to leave and they would stay, but he didn't want to leave yes. without them. And he finally convinced all of them to, to get <laughs> out of there before they became the most valuable POWs of the war. Exactly. No, and that's what it probably ended the war. You know, you're talking all these generals, and I believe Henry Knox was not with them. I think he was trying to get cannon across at the time. Okay. Because uh, Nathaniel wrote him and said that it, it, a famous line I was mad, vexed, sick, and sorry over the whole fort falling. 
And he needed to hear a good word from his friend, which was Henry Knox. He wanted to know what the other generals were saying about him. And they were saying some very bad things about Nathaniel Green, that he didn't deserve to be a general, that his Rhode Islanders didn't deserve to be in the army. They were very vicious at him, but Washington stood by his side. He did, and Green didn't have too much time for self-reflection because then that very next thing he had to do was evacuate Fort Lee before he had another disaster there. Exactly, yeah. They were taken by surprise with that one, too. He was asleep when he got the news that Cornwallis had gotten up on the Palisades, I guess, about six miles away or so. Yeah, Yeah, Cornwallis had done a pretty amazing pre-dawn raid to get across the river, and they were on top of the Americans before the Americans knew what was happening. Right. Even though Washington had already said we need to evacuate, they hadn't. And Nathaniel had sent stores through New Jersey in case the army had to retreat through New Jersey. He had done that previously. So there was a little preparation, but they pretty much just left everything and ran. The next few weeks are the Continentals essentially running across New Jersey and the British chasing them uh, mm-hmm. until they get back across to Pennsylvania. And by this time, it's almost the end of 1776. And the British go into winter quarters. And of course, we all know what happens on Christmas 1776. Uh, what was Green's role in all of that? He led one of the columns that when they all got across, they marched for a while together and then they separated. I can't remember where it was, on Burlington Road or somewhere. Mm -hmm. And he took a column off, and John Sullivan took a column off. John Sullivan went down the River Road, and Nathaniel went on the Pendleton Road or Pennington Road or something. And anyway, so they converged on Trenton. The two columns came around and converged on Trenton in the morning. So that was basically... Washington was still leaving Green as one of his division commanders in this main attack. He, he was yes. still holding a very important position, which shows Washington still very much had confidence in this young man, despite the challenges he'd faced so far. Yes. So, yeah, they succeeded in, of course, capturing the, the Hessians at Trenton and then going on to take Princeton, uh, where uh, one of Green's uh, closest friends in the army, General Mercer, is killed. But throughout all of this, Green is pretty much staying by Washington's side. I think at, around this time, his wife, Katie, joins them. Is that right? Well, she joined them at the Siege of Boston, and then she went home and had a baby right. and came back to take care of him when he had jaundice. And then she arrived in the camp at Morristown, which was in the winter of 1777. After Trenton and Princeton, when the Army uh, wintered in Morristown, New Jersey, she came to visit them too as well. Katie Green was a very young woman. She was, I think, 12 years younger than Nathaniel, who was pretty young himself. I think she was 19 when they got married, just before yes. the war. Uh, but she kind of became the life of the party at, at the camp. I, I understand General Washington was very taken with her. Very much so. She could speak French. You know, she liked to dance. The men just loved her. They were all just smitten over her. She was very convivial and, and beautiful. Yeah, she was a bright ray of sunshine in camp. And Nathaniel didn't really show any jealousy over it. I think he was just really proud of her, and he loved her very, very much. Yeah, and I don't think anything untoward was going on. She was just a popular person that everybody liked to see at the party. Yeah. And, of course, to note Green's relationship with George Washington at the time, she brought their first child with them, who was named... 
George Washington Green. George Washington yeah. Green, exactly. So <laughs> he, the, the admiration between both men certainly went both ways. The following year, we get into the Philadelphia campaign, and Green is still one of General Washington's top division commanders as General Howe takes his troops south to Maryland and marches up toward Philadelphia. They were doing a lot of running back and forth, trying to figure out where Howe was going to land. Once he did land at Hedabelt, Maryland, Nathaniel did a lot of reconnoitering with his aides, with Washington. Uh, He knew Lafayette by then, of course. The big thing he did was a lot of scouting to see what was going on in the countryside. Uh, That was his biggest role pre-Brandywine battle. But during the Battle of Brandywine, he was basically held in reserve. He had a 1,200 Virginian regiment under his command, and he was basically held in reserve. And during that battle, which lasted all day, Washington's right flank was turned. All the men, John Sullivan and all his guys were up on Birmingham Hill, and they started to retreat. So Nathaniel came riding to the rescue at the last minute with his Virginia regiment. Cornwallis was chasing the army. Who was re- the, these guys were just running. It was just you know crazy. And Nathaniel rode to the rescue, and his uh, Virginia regiment stopped Cornwallis's pursuit. That saved a lot of lives there, because otherwise, who would have known what would have happened once if Cornwallis had actually caught up with these fleeing patriots. Right. I mean, nobody really gets credit for a battle loss, but Green's role at Brandywine was very important. In Extremely. Keeping, keeping the army together to fight another day uh, mm-hmm. is, is holding action to allow the rest of the army to retreat was critical to that. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Of course, the British, after winning Brandywine, go on a few weeks later to take Philadelphia. And the Continental Army wants to stay nearby, so they move out to a place called Valley Forge. And that's, as an understatement, a tough winter for them. In the beginning, after all the snow and everything, where they could actually get some supplies in, he was actually in charge of uh, forging operations. There were some, uh, a lot of uh, like Connecticut regiments out in the field. That was his basic responsibility, besides you know, taking care of his brigades there his men. At the time, the quartermaster general of the army, the Continental Army, Thomas Mifflin, quit. This was during the Conway Cabal when they were trying to bring Washington down. And they were trying to bring Nathaniel Green down with him, saying Nathaniel Green was 
was holding Washington's ear and it was just this big finger pointing thing going on there. And so when that kind of settled down, they needed a new quartermaster general. And a committee from Congress came to camp to see, you know, about the, the state of the army during this time. Nathaniel was in charge of this grand forge. He was given specific instructions from Washington where to forge. He went out there. He established headquarters. He checked out to see what was going on, sent Anthony Wayne here and there. And so when he got back to camp, they pressed him to become the quartermaster general of the army. He did not want this at all. He didn't want to be taken from the line of splendor. He didn't want to be chained to a desk with the drudgery of paperwork, but he took the position because of the army and because of Washington. He wa- he wanted to do his duty, the, what he thought was right. I forget who it was now, but Congress wanted to appoint someone else as quartermaster. It was somebody that Washington absolutely did not want. And yeah. he, he basically begged Green to take the job because yes. he couldn't come up with anybody else that Congress might find acceptable to fill the role. Basically, this was during the whole Conway cabal, as you said, and a lot of people in Congress were trying to replace Washington with the hero of Saratoga, Horatio Gates. Green, as you said, was very closely tied with Washington. So a lot of people in Congress are saying, well, Gates won these all these great battles. Washington's losing all these battles. Why don't we replace the loser with a winner and bring it, you know, let Gates bring in his team and, and take over the army? And that was the whole struggle over the course of the winter that Washington and Green were fighting. And as I said, they were trying to make other appointments and and push Washington into a corner. And one of the things Washington did was he wanted somebody he could trust in the quartermaster role. And that's why he turned to Green. And of course, going from quartermaster to a line officer is kind of a reduction. I mean, quartermasters don't make history. Line officers. That's that's exactly what he said, too. Nobody ever heard of a quartermaster in history. He did tell the committee at Congress that he wanted to retain his major generalship and his field command if it was applicable. So they agreed to that. Not only is quartermaster kind of a thankless job in good times, there were soldiers literally starving to death at Valley Forge because they just didn't have enough food and Congress had no money to buy food. And so you were basically asked to be a miracle worker. And if you pulled off the miracle... Yeah, so people had dinner, so what? That's not a very exciting thing as opposed to winning a battle. Right, but yes, like you said, it was was a necessary evil. I mean, they had to be clothed, and they they needed a... It wasn't just the men, either. It was the the horses that also needed to be fed and cared for. So there was a lot to it. The quartermaster also established campsites and things, so it was a huge job. And, of course, he had deputies and whatnot. The leadership had been lacking up until that point. Mifflin, who had had the job, was kind of pushed out because they thought he was incompetent. So Green becomes quartermaster. How long did he have that job? Two years. He tried to resign several times out of frustration, and Congress ignored him. Congress started changing their policies. They took away a lot of his deputies. They took away a lot of his money, and they were pressing the states to to supply provisions in the states, of course, balked at that. And Nathaniel just speak, he said, basically said it, it's impossible to do business. This is just impossible. 
And he finally wrote another letter of resignation, July 1780. He made Congress extremely mad. It was a tough letter. And he did tell them, though, because they had accused him and his deputies of misappropriation of their commissions. And he basically told Congress, you've hurt my feelings. He wrote this in the letter. It was part of it. But then he turned around and pulled rank and said, I'm a high-ranking general in this army. But Washington supported him. He went to Washington and said, this is what I'm going to do. And Washington said, you have my blessing. You you can do whatever you need to do. Because he knew Green was unhappy. Very few of the generals were ever happy with Congress, but Green especially was always bumping heads with them. He had gotten in trouble before when he joined uh, in a petition with several other top officers about the appointment of so many French officers. And yeah, he was constantly complaining about the quartermaster. And I got to side with Green on this one. Congress was expecting this entire army to be fed and not giving them any money. They were giving them some worthless continental dollars, which nobody wanted to accept. Mm-hmm. And so they always had to pay inflated prices for everything because I guess if you won't take one continental dollar, maybe you'll take three. But Congress was seeing all this money burn away and not realize that it was their own incompetence and their lack of a fiscal policy, an effective fiscal policy that was making it happen. So, of course, their line is, well, the problem must be waste, fraud, and abuse in the quartermaster corps. Yes. <laughs> and that's what happened to poor old Green. They're saying, all right, well, we gave you all this money. Where's all the food? And he's like, you didn't give me money. You gave me paper, and I'm not stealing it. Nobody even wants your paper. That's yeah. why his letter was so horrendously blunt. Right. He and they threatened him. to throw him out of the army, too. They said, and, you're. And yeah. The Continental Congress was going to take his letter as a resignation from the Continental Army. He was resigning mm-hmm. quartermaster, but they were like, well, we don't want you anymore then. And it was really Washington's intervention that kept them from going that far. Yes. And, and he had already irritated. He and Henry Knox and a few other generals, like you said about the French officers, had threatened to resign. That was in 1777. And John Adams demanded an apology, and Knox and Green and Sullivan said, well, we're not apologizing, because right. they said, we can't put up with this. So he'd already had, like you said, rubs with Congress. Right. I mean, Congress's big concern in all that is, we're the civilian control of the government, and if we're mm-hmm. letting officers dictate to us how we're running our government, then we're losing civilian control of the government. Right. So exactly. That's the argument on the other side of things, whereas... The officers were just saying, hey, you guys are complete bumbling fools. <laughs> we need to do something sane here. Yeah. Um, so it was more of a practical versus ideological issue. So this is 1780 by this time where Green is almost kicked out of the army, but not. But he is no longer the quartermaster. And at this time, we see the greatest loss of the war for the Americans General Benjamin Lincoln is captured with an army of 5,000 in Charleston, South Carolina, and Congress needs to send a new leader to the South. And Washington wants Green to be that leader. Congress is not so sure. So what do they do? They send Horatio Gates. They send Horatio Gates. The man that Washington absolutely hates by this time um, (laughs) is going to go down to South Carolina and going to repeat his great victory at Saratoga by right. defeating the British in the South. And he gets as far as Camden, and things don't go so well. No. <laughs> so, yeah, there's a, there's a huge British victory at Camden. Gates' army virtually disintegrates. The, the men who aren't captured just 
escape, run away, throw away their guns. They literally just run into the swamps and don't stop until they get home hundreds of miles away. And Gates is no different. He gets on his horse, which is actually a a race horse that somebody had lent him. And he rides hundreds of miles in a couple of days, just running from the field as fast as he possibly can. And that kind of ends his military career because you don't get a good reputation as a general if you just run away from all your men. In the yeah, of- for whatever reason, you know, he kind of claimed, well, I was going to go get reinforcements. Well, that's ridiculous. Because, yeah. <laughs> and the, the battle's lost and your second in command is dying. And yeah. Yeah, it was a, it was a huge disaster. So at that point, Congress still doesn't want to appoint Green because they still don't like him. So they just basically give Washington authorization to do whatever he wants as, a part, as far as appointing a southern commander, probably knowing full well who he's going to pick at this point. Mm-hmm. Probably so. So Green becomes the third Southern, well, probably the fourth or fifth Southern fourth, commander, yeah. a few, few before General Lincoln's loss. But we've had two commanders in a row now, major, very important major generals, Benjamin Lincoln and Horatio Gates, take large armies to the South and have them utterly decimated. And Green is now up for strike number three. He's taking a large army to the South, and actually not so large anymore, to see what he can do. Yeah, he um, accepts the command and he breaks it to Katie that he's going south. And of course, she hates that. And he takes uh, General Baron von Steuben with him as his second in command. And they go down there, get to Virginia. He leaves Steuben in Virginia to try to raise uh, militia and provisions. They tried to raise it along the way and they didn't do a very good job because the states were uncooperative. And so Nathaniel leaves Steuben there and he goes and searches for the army and he finds them in Charlotte, North Carolina. And they are, like you said, decimated. They're starving. They're sick. The Colonel Otho Hall and Williams is kind of holding them together. And Horatio Gates is there and they have a civil change of command, not nothing formal, but a civil change of command and Gates leaves. So now Green has this little army. Right, and it's mostly militia at this point. It's not even a whole lot of continental Mm -hmm. soldiers that have any kind of experience. One thing he does pick up that benefits him is uh, there was an important colonel from Virginia who had resigned his commission. I think Edward Carrington. Uh, No, I'm actually thinking of Morgan. Sorry, I'm I'm failing on his. Oh yeah, that's right, Daniel Daniel Morgan. Morgan. (laughs) Duh. Um, (laughs) Congress actually promotes Morgan to brigadier at this point as part of the way of encouraging him to come back to the army. Morgan had been critical at several key northern battles, including Saratoga, with his riflemen. He was kind of overlooked for promotion and had a number of ailments, so he just decided to hang it up and retire. And Gates had actually begged Morgan to join him on his way down to Camden, and Morgan said, no, I'm done. Green finally did convince Morgan to join him, and they headed south, and Morgan famously fought the Battle of Cowpens, which military strategists still teach to their students to this day because it was just such an amazing battle. And Green actually uh, repeats the same strategy a few weeks later at another battle. So, um, <laughs> yeah. But, but Green does not do particularly well on the battlefield as far as winning battles and taking ground. He does terrible job of it. What he did do was he, uh, after Calvin's, Cornwallis was furious. He's in command of the Southern Army, uh, the British Southern Army. 
And he chases Green's little army all over the place, across the Dan River, the race of the Dan, and then they finally meet at Guilford Courthouse. And that's where Nathaniel tried to imitate what Morgan had done at Cabin's. Cornwallis's army was decimated, even though they were the victors at Guilford Courthouse. They were technically the victors in that they held the field, but I think Guilford was the one where Cornwallis ended up firing on his own men because the two men were so intermingled and he thought the yeah. Americans were going to win. I've read that in a lot of places where they he supposedly turned the cannon on them. Yeah. And I, I always wondered if that really happened, but I don't know. But I mean, the bottom line was the British and, and Cornwallis held the field, so technically they're the victors, but yes. at a great cost of uh, men that he could not afford to lose. He, his army is slowly dwindling, whereas Green is slowly raising more and more militia and getting more and more men to join him. So Cornwallis's army is shrinking and Green's army is growing. And it's also uh, when he's chasing Green around South Carolina and North Carolina, they're getting farther and farther away from their supply yeah. lines. So when he when Cornwallis retreats down to Wilmington, North Carolina, after Guilford Courthouse, that's closer to his supply lines and kind of leaves South Carolina open. Right. And Cornwallis is on his way up to Yorktown, which we all know doesn't go well for him. But Green does not follow Cornwallis into Virginia. He heads south into a relatively undefended uh, South Carolina at this point. The British are sold in Charleston and Savannah and uh, Wilmington, North Carolina. But what Green decides to do is he's going to wipe out these British supply depots. And that's what they he starts doing. He sends the militia generals, uh, Light Horse Harry Lee, to go and attack a bunch of these forts along the rivers. And he systematically destroys the British supply lines and their lines of communication. And finally brings his army down until they've got them kind of locked into Charleston. But they're not under siege. They're just kind of locked in there. Right. But this is the successful continental strategy in a lot of places and a lot of times. is The, the British can take a large area because they have a large body of troops to hold it. So they can hold a big city. But if they can't hold the area around the city it really doesn't do them a lot of good because they can't recruit people, they can't collect food, they can't do all the things they need to do to maintain their garrison. And that's what Green successfully does in South Carolina, yes. which several other officers had tried to do and failed, but he succeeds in taking out all these outposts and forcing the British into one big city where they really can't do much damage outside of it. Yes, exactly. Even though he's, like you said, he's lost a lot of the battles. He's relentless and he's not going to let South Carolina fall. What he did was unbelievable because he had militia coming and going. His army was starving and he just, he never stopped writing letters. He never let up and he was extremely concerned about reestablishing civil authority in Georgia and South Carolina because it had collapsed and the governor, John Rutledge, was in exile. He was often in camp with Nathaniel Green, so they had a good relationship. And it was, this was really important to get the civil authority up and running again in Green's mind. Right. There was a lot of concern, I think, that this war seemed to be coming to an end. But if the British retained control of Georgia and South Carolina, 
we might have granted independence to 11 states and two would have remained British colonies, as, as did many others, like the colonies in what became Canada remained British. South Carolina and Georgia easily could have remained British colonies after the war had the Americans not been able to retake it. And, and we mostly have General Green and his army to thank for that. Yes, that's and that was exactly what Nathaniel's concern was, what you just described, was that there would be peace and that the British were still holding those two states. I think uh, Green's really last big hurrah, as far as battles go, was uh, Utah Springs. <laughs> I love that battle. I've been to the battlefield a lot. Yeah. Um, yes, they lost the battle. Well, they both claimed victory. But um, it was quite an intense battle. It lasted for four hours. And there was huge losses. I think they're both sides lost like 1,400 men. But, yeah, that was his last hurrah. He was awarded a Congressional Gold Medal of Honor for that battle. Yeah, and Green had really realized this was a war of attrition. And whether he held a field at the end of the battle or not really didn't matter. What mattered was that the British Army kept losing men that they could not replace and that they were slowly dwindling. And, yeah, Utah Springs was a big part of that. And if he was if he was showing strength in the in the state, the civilian population would also be more apt to be on the Patriots side because they were having their own civil war down there. The civilians were. And that was also a great concern. Yeah, I mean, there were certainly lots of people who were hardcore patriots or hardcore loyalists on either side, but there was a huge portion of the population that was mostly, I just want to farm and not have my land yes. seized and all that. And if the British were in control, fine, let me go farm my fields. And if the Americans were in control, fine, let me go farm my fields. And so maintaining the, the appearance to the population that, yes, we the Americans are in control uh, certainly had a big help to getting those people on their side, at least for the Right. <laughs> right. So the war comes to an end. Charleston's evacuated and the war comes to an end and then he goes home to Rhode Island. Katie has rented a house in Newport, so they move in there. In 1782, he was not getting any money from the Continental Congress or the states to clothe his men. And he ended up having to sign a personal $30,000 loan. Uh, not loan, it was a guarantee to a merchant who was supposed to provide clothes to his army. And the merchant did some money-making schemes and lost his credit. And Nathaniel had to step up and, and do basically a signature loan and say, here, here's you know my guarantee. And everything went wrong. He did get the clothing, but everything went wrong. And so he was in horrible, horrible debt. He had to borrow money from Robert Morris, the Marquis, a bunch of his friends, and he was crushed under this debt. So this is a common complaint of a lot of Continental officers, is they put their personal money and credit on the line to save their troops at a desperate time, and they're looking to the Continental Congress to reimburse them as soon as they can. And the Continental Congress just kind of says, don't know Sorry. what you're talking about, don't really want to <laughs> we got no money. You're right. You're right. A lot of the generals did do this. It wasn't just Green. But, but Green was hit particularly hard by it. Yes, he was. And they did give him, uh, the state of Georgia gave him a plantation called Mulberry Grove. And South Carolina gave him a plantation called Boone's Barony. And of course, the cost of running that was money he didn't have. But he went home to Rhode Island. 
eventually he and Katie decided that, well, he was trying to clear his debt and this wasn't happening. And he had to keep going back south to talk to lawyers. John Banks, the guy that he uh, was supposed to provide the clothing, died during this time. And so Nathaniel's hopes of ever clearing his debt with him just dropped to zero. So he and Katie finally decided their best bet was to move south to the Mulberry Grove Plantation, which they did in October of 1785. And by this time, they had five children. So he was very concerned about how he was going to take care of his family. He also had bought uh, land on Cumberland Island off the coast of Georgia, which he was trying to um, start cutting timber and even trying to sell it to France. But he was having trouble getting hiring people, capable people to do this, cut this lumber and timber. Yeah, this was before the the U.S. Constitution was ratified. So really the Continental Congress or the Confederation Congress, whatever you want to call it at this point, just had no money. And they had made all these promises to officers about what they were going to get after the war. And they were just not coming through with any of them. And these men who had sacrificed, you know, nearly a decade of their lives in, in military service were just bankrupt at this point and just doing anything they could to rebuild their lives. Yes. When they moved down there, Katie got pregnant again, had their sixth child. She fell and the baby was born early and died. And so they were having some tragedy going on. Mulberry Grove was coming along well, but he still had no money. He wrote to Henry Knotts and he said that his family was in distress and he had no idea how he was going to get out of it. And he felt embarrassed. He was embarrassed because he was in this situation and couldn't get him extricate himself from it. And you're right, Congress would not pay him his money. So they were trying to develop their rice crop there in Mulberry Grove. He and Katie went to Savannah to meet with their lawyer, Nat Pendleton. And a London firm was demanding the money from Green. Let me back up. I'm sorry. I jumped ahead. He was getting letters from this London firm that was involved with the whole John Banks clothing business. And they were demanding money from him and saying, we need our money, you need to pay up. And he didn't have it. So he finally met one of their representatives in Savannah and went there in June of 1786. They went on June 11th, went in Savannah on the way home to Mulberry Grove. They stopped at a neighbor's home at Plantation. And Nathaniel walked the fields with his neighbor so they could talk about, you know, he was learning. He was learning how to be a rice planter. And he didn't wear a hat under the sun. On the ride home, he complained he had a headache. He went home and went to bed. Well, things got worse. His head started to swell and they called a doctor. The doctor bled him, you know, the usual treatments that did nothing of the day. And he was diagnosed with sunstroke. And his neighbor was actually General Anthony Wayne, who had gotten a plantation as well from the state of Georgia. And Anthony Wayne arrived because he was so sick. Um, Nathaniel was sick and he sat with Katie for days. They sent the kids away. So Nathaniel dropped into unconsciousness and he died on the morning of June 19, 1786. And he's 43. Right. He's only 43 years old at this point. He made it through the whole war and sunstroke did him in. Yeah. I mean, poor Katie was only, what, 30, 31 years old? Yeah, at the time? right, right. She's already a widow with six kids. 
bankrupt estate. Right. Well, five because the last baby oh, died, right. and, and she, away. you know, the baby just died two months before Nathaniel died. So she's got this. Yeah, now she's just faced with all this stuff, and she's away from home and and hasn't lived in Georgia that long. Right. No family around or anything. Mm-hmm. One of the real shames is, I mean, many of our founding fathers, many of the great generals, went on to do amazing things after the war, and we probably would have expected the same of Green. But he didn't get the opportunity because he, as you say, passed away in 1786, only a couple of years after the war ended. So, yeah, I mean, it's a real shame. And, of course, well, what, I guess one nice extra about this or interesting extra is Katie Green actually took on an interesting tenant after General Green passed away. She took on Eli Whitney, the inventor of the cotton gin. They had a tutor um, tutoring their children. The Greens, his name was Phineas Miller. She and Phineas encouraged Eli Whitney to to work on his invention, and they actually financially backed him. She ended up marrying Phineas Miller in 1794 or something. I can't remember the exact date. But yes, they were involved in Eli Whitney's cotton gin invention. Yeah, which really changed the course of the South for decades. Yes. Uh, Selena, this has been really interesting. Thanks for joining me today. As we said, you have a new book coming out on the life of Nathaniel Green that's called The Line of Splendor, which, as you said, was taken from a quote that he made about not wanting to leave the front lines. Yes, from a letter he wrote to Pennsylvania politician Joseph Reed, and he said they have taken me from the line of splendor. When can we expect this book to be released? I'm hoping by the end of 2023. It's under edit right now, but these things take a long time. So um, hopefully by then, and I plan on keeping everybody informed. All right. Well, great. We look forward to it. This has been really a lot of fun. Thank you so much, Michael, for having me. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us. I'd like to thank Selena Baker once again for taking the time to sit down with me and talk about Nathaniel Green. Please keep an eye out for her upcoming book, which is probably going to be called The Line of Splendor. It's a book about Nathaniel Green. I think you'll enjoy it. You can also read more about Selena Baker and her works by going to her website at selenabbaker.com. Well, that's all for this time. I hope you will join me next time for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.